The door had a simple latch, its brass tarnished green. From the direction of the hull, Hutch guessed that it would lead them to the university-built entrance topside. It took considerable force to lift the latch, the handle dangerously close to tearing from the timber before the door peeled open with a faint sucking sound. The smell was pungent. He grimaced, his eyes watering as if he'd been slapped in the face. Shit. He waved the boys back. He forced the door open as far as it would go and held the phone through the cavity. But the darkness there was even hungrier, the water like a black mirror. What do you see? Jane, his brother, had retreated to the fresh air of the sinkhole. A whole lot of nothing, Hutch replied. He held up his Nikon and took a random picture. The flash revealed a split second of disorder. He reviewed the image on the screen. It was slightly out of focus. Beams and a staircase, perhaps. Crates and what could be upturned furniture floating in the water. And he couldn't quite make it out. Something at the far end, squeezed between the shadows, no more than a silhouette. What he had seen or thought he saw just couldn't be. His practical side reassured him that it was a trick of the light, but the repulsive smell screamed otherwise. He held the Nikon against the door frame to steady his trembling hands. His cyclopean eye pointed into the centre of the cabin, blinked open with the press of the shutter button. The flash filled the cabin. Hutch fell back onto his haunches on unsteady legs as he drew the Nikon into his lap. He pressed preview, the screen filled with a crisp, clear image from the far wall. This time there was no mistaking it. The three figures sat cross-legged against the far wall, shoulder to shoulder. What is it, Jay cried. What did you see? Hutch looked up in a whisper said, the picture that roared. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by B. Michael Radburn, talking about the newest book in his Taylor Bridges series, The Reach. As a park ranger with prior experience in assisting with motor investigations, Taylor finds himself in the secluded town of Devlin's Reach, on the shores of the Hawkesbury River, when three bodies are unearthed on an excavation site. As Taylor discovers the town's dark history, more bodies turn up, and a torrential storm threatens to wipe out the entire town. Baz, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you're most welcome. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity. So going back to the beginning of your Taylor Bridges series, starting with The Crossing, what inspired you to write a crime novel with a park ranger as the protagonist? Well, crime, there's a lot of crime out there and, and there's a, a pretty basic formula behind most of them. It's either the, the cop, the retired cop, the detective, the, the private detective and the amateur sleuth. Mm. I didn't want to go there. I wanted my protagonist to be an accidental hero. Um, I, I had the series in mind, but a lot of focus on that first book, The Crossing, was to to set him up um, and have it from a cinematic sort of look at the story too. Basically, three 
uh, acts from a, a point of view of the one character uh, on a very broad cinematic um, place like Tasmania. But I wanted to work as much about the character and his journey as it was about the crime. Taylor is, a, is, a, is an accidental hero rather than a planned one. He found himself a, a, an ordinary man in a very extraordinary situation there. But obviously you couldn't play that for the rest of the series. He had to develop. And in um, The Falls, the second one, he was actually invited by the police to come into a, a, a similar crime in as much as it was set in a, a national park and it was very um, a, a, part, a lost part of the national park and very much needed his skills as that even he was surprised he had as far as that um, the wilderness mm. uh, and everything it needed on the forensic side of, of um, that sort of place. So as we develop and go on to the reach, then he's, he's very much well known now throughout the police as being uh, very helpful on these sort of cases. Uh, so so that, was, that was the reason for having um, someone like a park ranger. It gave me also a very broad range of locations to use all over Australia. Mm. Um, so, and that's what I've done. So the first one set in Tasmania, the second one set closer to his home on the mainland around um, uh, the lakes region of Victoria. And now, of course, the reach up in the upper reaches of, of the Hawkesbury. And as you said, Taylor has a lot of knowledge of the outdoors and the wilderness, which aids him in his investigations. How do you go about researching that aspect of his character and making the knowledge that he has come across as believable on the page? That's a really great question. I, I'm from the camp of less is more. Hmm. It's a part of, of just taking the necessary parts out of it, but, but having his character believable of his background in that area. I, I draw on my own childhood and, 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 and teens as I've always been close to the wilderness, the riverlands, uh, the Blue Mountains. They were very much my playground mm. as a child and still are in a lot of ways. So, so that, that's where the passion, Taylor's passion comes from for the wilderness. The, the technical side of it, I draw back on um, national parks and wildlife and they're very open to help with the research, whether it be in New South Wales, uh, Victoria, uh, you can always find someone someone to help through the, through the system there. Mm. So that's, that's how I tackle the technical side of it. But I ne you'll notice in my books, I, I never drill down too technical, if that makes sense. Yeah, it comes across as very approachable for the reader, which I think is a good step. Yeah, because I, I think it can, can alienate if you go mm. too far on a particular subject. That's great for those who are passionate about a subject, but not so great for those who just want to continue with the story. As you said, The Reach is the third book in the series. Will readers be mm. able to jump straight into this one or is there something they should they would they might miss if they if they do so? No, hundred percent. In in fact, you know, I, I look at the reach and see it as possibly the best launch point so far to get into okay. the series if you haven't read it before. That is both accidental and also when I saw the pattern there at the beginning of the book. It's something that I latched on to, and I think it's worked really well. No, it, it's not an on-running story from mm. the gecko. We set him up. It's, it's a development. There's enough references to the other books uh, in it to pique a reader's interest to go back and have a look. Or, but it's not. It's certainly not uh, critical for this story in any way, and, and it, it'll remain that way. Mm. Yeah, it'll remain that way. 
and Derich sends Taylors to the shores of the Hawkesbury River in the fictional town of Devlin's Reach in northern New South mm. Wales. What inspires you to set your next novel there? Recently, since, uh, since I've struck some success with this recently, I've been spending some time up there on two files. Uh, there, there's some great readers, writers, and there's a, a writers festival, an annual one up there that mm. I've been going to, and it's really piqued my interest again in that area. My wife also is a first fleeter. Over the last few years, we've been delving into that area to follow her uh, lineage as well throughout the old towns and graveyards and stuff. And mm. it just is so inspiring for for my kind of stories. It's just It just had to be written, screamed to me when we went back up in there a few years back. It's just a, a fantastic, the history, the ghosts are everywhere and, and you feel them and you spend enough time there too, you come away feeling like you've sort of added to the history mm. a little bit, or I do as a writer. It's just a marvellous, wonderful area as far as mood and I, I hope I've paid, I, I hope I've brought it to life. One thing I do, I do like playing God in creating my own locations. Mm. Some of that is also laziness because you can't always find the location you exactly want. Yeah. So I'll always sort of start to drill down by looking at the, the state I wanted in, drill down on the geography of that place and then the politics and then really narrow it down and find myself my own little town that, and its culture and its history based around that geography and uh, politics of the main area too. It works well. I, I love doing mm. it that way. Are there any particular towns in that area that you drew upon for Devlin's Reach? Is it like an amalgamation of different areas or, or one particular place? I, I think it really is an amalgamation. That, that's mm. how I work. There's, there's never an epiphany of a story or a, of a novel with me, even with the standalone crime work I do. It's always things I've been carrying since I was a kid, you know. I mean... Uh, and then it comes together. It just comes together as a story. And I, I carry uh, a lot of characters and locations and people's backgrounds and story. I could carry them for years. I don't write them down. They're just there in the ether. And, and then all of a sudden I, I, I can sort of go to that toolbox and pick those little pieces together for something that's been mm. bubbling away there as a full story. And I'm well armed with those quirky characters and locations and stories, yeah. And you'll note too that there's there's always little backstories for each character and things like that that I carry with them. I, I don't try and weight it down too much because that can be a distraction to the main story. Mm. But uh, I certainly love giving life to all of my characters, no matter how minor. And something in the reach today found particularly interesting and sort of made it a bit different from other crime novels was a very tiny hint of the paranormal or otherworldly in the book, most notably through yeah. Taylor's daughters, Erin and Claire, the latter of which gives the former messages beyond the grave, so to speak. What inspired this more paranormal side of the novel? That's a good pickup, Max, and I'm glad it's I'm glad it's it's bubbled to the surface there. That's I cut my teeth back in the 80s on um, speculative fiction, horror, science fiction, and I did quite well back then, and, and it's still there now. And I still work with uh, some of the um, great horror anthologies, uh, Snafu, to name, name a very successful one at the moment. Yeah, I, I still do well. I, I love short stories. I love the speculative market, the horror market. It, it's in my blood. It's mm. in my DNA. So I call it my what if. I, I don't 
I like it to hover around the background a little bit, a little what if, and and leave it at that on my crime series or my crime books. So I'm glad it, it has surfaced, and and that's the genesis of it. It's because it is in my DNA. It started back in the crossing because uh, t- Taylor found himself there more so on self-exile because of the loss of his first daughter. We have really also on that too, um, James Ketty is making a film of The Crossing. Um, the working title at the moment is uh, Dark Sky Island. And and he's played on that a little bit more, brought that a little bit more to the surface, which I'm really happy about. But it, it's good. It's given me a little vehicle to keep that what if in there. And I'm, it gives me Erin um, to, to develop with mm. each book too, because she has that... A connection with her dead sister that she never knew and um, without giving too much away there, there are plans to have a little um, as Erin gets a little older to have a little branch off from this uh, this series as well with possibly her and that connection with the dead sister. The Reach also introduces us to Detective Sergeant Everett who sort of acts as an alternate perspective in the book. What did you want to achieve with his character? Okay, well, let's just go step back a little bit again. With with planning this series, and it's worked out well for me, the, the crossing was one point of view, and we also had the uh, interaction with the detective on the case down there and, mm. a, and a local police sergeant. And that worked well. I liked the balance of having these other characters to balance against Taylor. But there was the plan to move on from the falls and the reach into more of a um, uh, multiple perspectives. Mm. Uh, the difference between, say, a feature film and, say, uh, the HBO formula of true detective, say, where yeah. you, you have those multiple points of view. I really like that, and that's where I'm going with the series now. So, effectively, the way I see it, the crossing, I see that in my mind as a big screen. And with the others, I see that as more a, a, a good dark, small screen. Mm tales sort of thing so that that's how I sort of look at it before I even write them I really do like that balance and I think it's it's good for a series too I enjoy that that where I can balance Taylor's character with another brand new character as I did in the falls and as I did in the reach and, and I love his character in the reach he's, he's kind of I wanted to set him up as a kind of very young very keen however for for Taylor's help almost a prodigy but I also like that sort of MacGyver-esque ability for him to say make his own um, fingerprint powder and all those things to be able to fall on his own skills outside of the square because they are very isolated while this uh, storm front comes through on this isolated town of Devlin's Reach. I give a lot of thought to what I call the balancing character which is usually the cop Hmm. uh, because in every crime story we need that thread. Taylor will be there to assist the police and the forensic side of it there. Again I, I draw on that less is more on those sort of things it's not they're not forensic novels they're character driven novels going back to taylor this being the third book in the series how did you want to evolve or change his character i wanted to do it with an open mind i, I whenever i do my books i I, I do a, a fairly detailed synopsis, but try and leave about thirty percent of uh, growth mm. for the for the books and the characters to develop themselves. I'm blessed with Taylor because he does come out of nowhere somewhere sometimes in his own development, and and I just love it when I'm surprised at what actually comes out of 
left field sometimes while I'm writing in a certain direction and he taps me on the shoulder and says, no, what about this? Mm. <laughs> so he's one of those ones that can grow himself. I just feel like I'm taking notes some days rather than creative writing because I always knew from the crossing as that accidental hero, that ordinary man in an extraordinary situation, I knew he was better than that. He was damaged, but he could be fixed, you know, mm. and, and the skills he had there, he really wanted to see if he could take control of those in the next book, The, the Falls, and, and prove to himself, to his wife, to the world that he could get through it without coming away with those scars he did on the crossing. And then we find him in the reach with the families developed, his marriage has developed, he's, he's in a good place and he wants to do good things. But of course, there's still a little bit of friction there with between him and his wife because these cases take him to very dark places that mm. she knows he will have to bring home when, he, when it's finished. And as you were talking about before, you cut your writing teeth on short stories. And I wanted to ask how mm. the two mediums compare to you and also whether you think you might eventually write some shorter fiction within the Taylor Bridges series. The shorter fiction, let's work backwards. The, the, the shorter fiction, uh, there, there is one idea floating around. Hmm. I'm just not sure what to do with it or where to send it. Yeah. If you have a look at the way I dissect those books and each of those characters, those backstories are in effect what I draw from from my short stories because they are little short stories embedded in the main story hmm. uh, that come out in the appropriate places. As for the connection between writing short stories and writing a novel, they're similar but they're the same in the structure. But there's a real discipline to short stories when you're writing them for money because hmm. when you find a good marketplace, as I did um, well, through the 90s, early 2000s, a lot of the magazines I was writing for were, were was set. They were 2,800 words, 1,500 words, 1,200 words, mm. and quite often I was asked to do something to a theme, whether it be Anzac Day, Halloween. So there were some real um, disciplines that went in there. So you had to ask a question when you're writing, say, a 1,500-word piece, and it couldn't be any more or any less because of space. Um, you had to ask yourself is it relevant? As you write a piece, it may be great. It may be the best part you've ever written in your life. But if it's not relevant, then it can't be used. And I think it allows you in the, the larger pieces to keep the flow at a certain pace and a cadence. As you know, you know, most books, films, they work on a cadence. And I think I recognise that from that discipline of short story writing. And that's how, yeah, I apply it to the novels. As you mentioned before, your first book with Taylor Bridges, The Crossing, is currently under production as a movie. And if I'm not mistaken, mm. you're writing the script. That's right. I, I had an opportunity to write the yeah. screenplay, yeah. I wanted to ask how it felt to have one of your works coming to the big screen and what the process of adapting it to that screen has been like so far. Being wonderful, Max. That, that's, the, that's the short answer. Um, but it, it's also been frightening because mm. I've never written a, a, a screenplay before in my life. So as you can imagine, it's a it's a totally different discipline. You can't take 400 uh, or say 80,000 words, expect to have everything in that novel on a 90-minute screenplay. Mm. The trick is that some of the characters have to go, some have to be amalgamated, stories have to be taken out, backstories, others added, again, amalgamated. The key to it is if a director loves the book, 
then they love the spirit of the book. Even though you can't get everything into the screenplay, it's 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 important that you get the spirit of the book in that screenplay. Mm. I, I will never walk out of a cinema again and say, oh, the book was better, they left this out, they left that out. I really know now what a screenwriter on a, adapting uh, from, uh, uh, from a book is up against. I knocked uh, James back after we uh, signed the contracts. He asked me three times before I agreed to do it. First time, of course, it's not the first time it, this book was optioned. And each time uh, a film company came into it, I was asked to stand at arm's length to just let the grown-ups go in there and negotiate everything. And, mm. and I've always thought that filmmakers weren't particularly uh, welcoming of authors on the on the project. And I can imagine why. I mean, I can, it could be heartbreaking uh, on, on some aspects. But James asked me several times and said that he would assist and that, that the, the format's not an issue. He just wanted to make sure he, he kept that spirit of the book and he'd assist me throughout the process, which he has. And... Boy, we have a great uh, screenplay. <laughs> um, it, I'm really proud of it, and I can't wait to see it up there on the screen. And, um, and and I think I'm very blessed too, as my first foray into films, to have someone like um, James Keddy as the director producer on it. And you mentioned watching other adaptions of of books. Are there any that mm. really speak to you as a very good version of a book that kind of does capture that spirit? Yeah, I think both things, I can give you both ends of the scale. The first thing that comes to mind would be Shutter Island. I've read that. That's one of those books I can keep going back to and and find um, something new each time. And I can keep watching the film each time and compare it to the book. And and it's it's very true to the book. It's very complex story and the author Dennehy I think was was um was very clever on how he hid those things those little easter eggs all the way through it mm. until the reveal at the end I think it's a marvelous book and I think they made a marvelous uh, they honored it with the film but but by the same token they they did go hand in hand I really do feel that it was made with that cinematic point of view in it uh, I think the book was written that way um, on the other end of the scale um, and this gives James and I arguments because James uh, Caddy loves uh, Kubrick's work Stephen King's The Shining which yeah. I know Stephen King hated with a passion did, yeah I, that, that's the other end of the scale and and say what you want about the film but but it just missed the mark on the book entirely yeah, in my opinion. <laughs> For my obligatory final question, I wanted to ask where Taylor's next adventure might take him. I can tell you that because I'm halfway through the book. We're taking him up to the far north, up to the Northern Territory. Oh, okay, a bit different from the other settings. It is. Well, if you have a look at it, we've got the, um, in the crossing, we've had the biggest blizzard that Tasmania had seen in a decade. Then we go to the, the raging drought bushfires that went through that revealed the uh, killing fields of uh, the falls. Then we, now we're going up river to, uh, to during a storm event with the reach. So I think no, I'm going to send him somewhere hot and arid. And yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> but it, it's such a beautiful location up there. I've got, as you know, I love hidden places. Mm. You know, I love uh, whether it be the town or some of those locations in the, in, in the crossing um, the reach, the, the the gold mines with its links to this to the town and and its hidden histories, the ghost town that was revealed down in the valley there in the falls. 
the same with the reach and the buried boats, the buried river boats mm. that were on the re, uh, reclaiming of the land up there. The, the World War Two history up um, up north is full of old bunkers and runways and um, tunnels and mm. uh, uh, all sorts of infrastructure left over from the Americans up there. And that's where I'm setting. It's called the Wells, and the the town is called Lonesome Wells. Which is named by the Americans up there when they when they made up this uh, runway and infrastructure, and uh, I, it, I'm really excited about that one too. It's um, got lots of lots of great stuff in it. Yeah, it sounds really <laughs> good. Well, Baz, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you're most welcome, Max. I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity, and 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 thanks for your kind words on my work too.